Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I can't, I can't believe how excited I am for that movie. I, I know. I'm, I knew you would be. I'm squealing with glee over World War Z.
Yes, you are the zombie man. Oh, I hadn't even I hadn't even uh, heard that this trailer was out. And so we, it, we were going to say it just came out like a couple hours ago. Okay, and so here's the here's the problem. We are uh, we're re- recording this a little bit early, and so this is going to make us sound like we're really behind the times. <laughs> when right. people are actually listening, <laughs> when you're actually listening to this, just know that we were on top of it when it came out. That's and then right. we recorded the show. We really are up to snow. <laughs> We're up to snow. Uh, but we've got some travel. Uh, we've got some travel. Actually, so when you hear this, I will be uh, incognito. No, that's not the word. Incommunicado. Because my wife is taking me on a surprise trip from a birthday. Yeah, it's so going to be fun. It's going to be very fun. So that's why we're doing this all crazy out of, out of order thing, uh, because cause I'm traveling. That's right. I'm going away. I'm I'm going a up mystery up, adventure up, up the creek. You just need so, to make sure you you have your luggage. Always have your luggage. Mm-hmm. Clothes makes the man. So uh, okay, so World War Z. This is uh, Brad Pitt uh, yeah. in in a family oriented uh, battle royale <laughs> of incredible CG zombies. Uh, they look like ants. The zombies. Yeah, it's going to be pretty crazy. What do you know about this movie? Mark Forster's directing it. um, And it's based on Max Brooks' book, of course. And this film has been plagued by (laughs) just a lot of troubles, budgetarily and uh, scheduling. And some people have been injured on set uh, of stampedes, just a lot of problems. Um, But I... uh, I, from the look of the trailer, it looks like it actually may be pretty good. Uh, of course people were. From the look of the trailer, of course people got hurt making this movie. Yeah, right. No kidding. It's right. like the whole movie is a stampede. It's a traffic jam and then a stampede toward the end. Yeah. To, all the way to the end. Zombies all the way down, my friends. Yeah. Yeah, Brad Pitt's in it. Uh, I'm not sure how you say your name. Morel Mar- Enos uh, from um, The Killing plays Brad Pitt's wife and um and those poor children The Killing have you seen that show that's a great show I love that show no the, I have not seen that show that was a what's that like an AMC thing right right yeah and then Matthew Fox David Morse uh it's it's a good good cast it's going to be a a global zombie disaster it's fantastic I'm very very much looking forward to this when does it uh, when does it come out um June I believe it was June twenty uh, first, two thousand thirteen. It was pushed back. It was supposed to open this Christmas, but with all these problems and everything, they had to push it back um, a full half year. Have you um, have you seen Have you read the book? I have, and I love it. Really, I have not. I'm getting it like I right can't now. Believe you haven't read it. I know. I know this. Uh, I know this. Why? So, uh, what the book came out in two thousand six? Max Brooks. It, what? What? Uh, what do you love about the book? Or oral history of the zombie war. Well, and, and honestly, I mean, from watching this trailer, it's really going to be nothing like the book, other than the fact that there's a zombie apocalypse. But the book, the premise is, you've got a reporter writing this book after the zombie pandemic, basically. And going around the world, interviewing people about their experience. And so you get this really fascinating global perspective from all walks of life all around the world and how people dealt with the zombie um, apocalypse and survived it. And it's a fascinating book, the way that it's told. This movie looks completely like it's happening during the zombie apocalypse. And the reporter's not there. I, I'm not quite sure what Brad Pitt's role is, but he seems to be tied into the government somehow. So uh, maybe his character was a character in the book. I can't recall. Um, but it looks vastly different in that aspect. Regardless, it still looks like it's going to be a globe-trotting zombie uh, journey. I, I, I'm giddy with anticipation. Yeah, you should Truly. be. It'll be fun. Uh, I wanted to check in with you about uh, something we uh, exchanged some words uh, on throughout the week, uh, which is this uh, Star Wars Despecialized Edition. Mm, have you right. had a, Have you had a chance to look at this? I I haven't. I, I started. 
you know, I've had plenty of other other computer things I've been dealing with this mm-hmm. past week, so I have not had a chance to to uh, finish downloading it or to look at it. Okay, well, the Star Wars, if you haven't heard of Star Wars, the Despecialized Edition, uh, just uh, do a, a friendly uh, uh, web search for Star Wars Despecialized and check it out. Uh, you're looking for a, a URL. There's a long forum URL, but the uh, the uh, top-level domain there is originaltrilogy.com, and you're looking for Harmy's Star Wars Despecialized Edition, and there is uh, uh, Harmy offers a, um, uh, a couple of download links, uh, a torrent link, so you can get this. What this, uh, the Despecialized Edition is essentially the original Star Wars Episode Four, uh, but with all of the updated uh, color correction. And it, it's essentially a remastering of the original 1977 theatrical version of Star Wars Episode Four, um, A New Hope. Uh, from the website, this is a reconstruction of the 77 theatrical version. The original shots were painstakingly restored using various sources, and the film received an extensive shot-by-shot color correction based on a fade-free 1977 IB Technicolor print. The remastered version represents a significant improvement in picture quality over the earlier version. Audio options include all three 77 mixes. The original 70mm 6-track was recreated by Harry Henn. The original stereo mix captured from Laserdisc and the original mono mix restored from Belbicus. Also included are isolated score tracks, a commentary track from the 1993 Laserdisc release, and a British commentary for the visually impaired. Uh, the video sources used a number of video sources and custom mats, uh, 35mm and 70mm film cell scans. Uh, I mean, really went to some length to do a frame-by-frame uh, remastering of this movie. Uh, total fan preservation. And I downloaded it, and I have to say, it is beautiful. And it is a wonderful way to remember just how great this this movie was the first time you saw it. Right. It really it's it's great. And so I I just uh, you know this is one of those things that I absolutely love that that uh there are people out there doing and I I feel like I I wish uh I need to read through this more clearly because I I wish there was a way to to better support these kind of fan preservations. The um my the, the thing that I brought up was I wonder if as great as it is that they did that, I wonder how fruitless it all is now that Disney owns the Lucas film library, essentially. Because Disney, I don't think, holds back like George did right? as far as releasing things. And so I wouldn't be surprised if down the road Disney releases the original cuts just to make more money. Yes, no, I I think you're exactly right, and I you know we this is what we talked about that that it, in fact that may be one of the best things that comes out of the acquisition of of um, you know Lucasfilm by Disney that we may get a uh, a remaster of the '77 original version, which I think you know would would likely satisfy uh, you know cinephiles and geeks everywhere. Um, Absolutely. To actually see this one with that uh, with that kind of treatment, I should add that the Empire Strikes Back has been available for a while. It looks like um, the Empire Strikes Back Despecialized Edition uh, you can also get also uh, from Harmy, and uh, and uh, you know I guess he started with that one because you know I mean everybody knows Empire's the favorite. And is there was there that much changed in Empire? Star um, Wars and or Episode Four and yeah. Jedi, as I recall, were the ones that had the biggest changes. Yeah, let's see. This is a cut which is very close to the theatrical version of The Empire Strikes Back, except for some of the cleaned up visual effects. A list of changes with picture comparisons and explanations of how the shots were despecialized can be found here. It also is available as a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> oh, how funny. If you don't have PowerPoint you can download the viewer, yada yada yada. So, uh, no, it looks like this was just a. a I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't. Uh, gosh, I don't remember a whole lot of uh, muddling with this movie. Uh, maybe that's why it was such a good uh, a good start. Yeah, right. Didn't have as much to change. Uh, you, you know, he he went back to the original logos, for example. Uh, the Luke, he went back to the Lucasfilm Limited logo in green, just straight up type, rather than the uh, the fancy uh, 
the fancy Lucasfilm logo that was added in 2004. Right. Um, went back to the original uh, blue color for the long time ago, Galaxy Far Away. Um, uh, Gosh, I don't oh, even remember know, it being blue. That's so funny. You know, there was a lot of uh, of crazy stuff added uh, in the uh, the Snow Monster special edition. You know, the the um, the abominable snowman. Scene. The Wampa. Yeah, uh, eating eating the arm. Right, right, right. So there's a lot of stuff there that was uh, that was re re specialized or despecialized. Um, so I, you know, I'm looking at the. Uh, he's got it in the the uh, all of these photos. Uh, you can look at the um, before and after. And true enough, uh, he did a lot of work. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. So Very that's cool. that's what I've got on Star Wars Despecialized. Uh, just go ahead and Google that. Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back Despecialized are available for download, courtesy of the uh, diligent, fantastic fan uh, in Harmy on the original trilogy.com. Gotta love those Star Wars fans. Gotta love those Star Wars fans. True enough. All right. We're in smack dab in the middle of our Great Car Chases uh, series. It is, uh, tonight is Ronin, 1998's uh, John Frankenheimer movie. Yes, indeed. Uh, Ronin is a fantastic film. It was uh, there's so much going on in in Ronin. It is a crime thriller, uh, written by uh, J D. Zeke and David Mamet. Uh, weirdly uh, uncredited uh, exp- uh, film from not David. uncredited. Well, it's it's uh, weirdly credited. That's why I, that's why I say weirdly because it's story, yeah. it's backstory. It's credited as not David Mamet. Right, he's credited as Richard Vice. Right. What, who is this Richard Vice? One asks. <laughs> That's right. Who is that? Uh, now, this, why it's David Mamet? It's David Mamet. Now, the reason we we are in, we include uh, this uh, Ronan in our great uh, car chases is because it's it's got not one but several great. Pretty much every time anybody gets in a car, there is a car chase in this movie that is fantastic. Uh, short car chases, little trips around the block, they end up being really exciting. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so this film just does great things with cars, um, uh, throughout, uh, Nice and Paris and, and, and lots of cars, lots of cars, lots of cars, lots of drivers, uh, and, uh, it ends in a stampede. Uh, so who knew? <laughs> film stars, Robert De Niro, Jean Reno, uh, Natasha McClone, uh, Stellan Skarsgård, uh, Sean Bean, Jonathan Price, uh, all as much has really uh, younger-looking people, with the exception of Robert De Niro. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, but uh, no, it's it's uh, really great in particular to see Sean Bean, who looks like a kid, and uh, Stellan Skarsgård, uh, who looks like a, a sort of a, a porcelain uh, cast of himself. <laughs> uh, and they ended up doing... Um, uh, doing excellent work in this film. So uh, the story, what's what's great about this, the the story of Ronan is that it is a story, um, uh, it is a quintessential story of the MacGuffin. It, is, it really is. And I had forgotten just how much the MacGuffin really plays into this film. Yes. But it is hugely, uh, it's all about the MacGuffin. It's, a, it's an amazing example of that. It is an amazing example of that. It is a uh, what we would say a textbook example of uh, the MacGuffin. It, the entire film ends up being uh, the the chase for the case. Uh, yep. These uh, uh, um, like an these, aluminum ice skate, right? Case. Ice skate case. These uh, th- these hired guns are brought together to uh, presumably do this job to acquire this case for uh, the Irish, for the IRA, for Sinn Fein. And uh, and so the the story is about these guys coming together. There is a double cross. There is a double cross of the double cross. And in the end, uh, it is a buddy movie between Robert De Niro and Jean Reno. As the, <laughs> <laughs> so, it's sort of the movie sort of evolves over the course of of uh, three four acts, and and by the end of the movie, it's um, it's lethal weapon in France. And <laughs> uh, and the the bottom line is, uh, we never find out what's in the case. The whole time, the question is quite obviously and literally asked, what is in the case? And it is 
ignored or misdirected every single time that question is asked. And what and happens? Then, and then he even brings it and when they say, well, what was in the case? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Or, or I forgot, right? Yeah, I forgot. Rule number two. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and and so this is uh, this is a movie about the things that go on around this case, and the the gamble is the the Frankenheimer gamble, the the Mammoth and Zeich, uh gamble, is that the things that happen in the orbit of the case are more interesting than the case themselves, and I think to me that I, I think that pays off uh, in this film tremendously. It it makes for uh, a. a... A, a great example of a film that that really ends with a surprise because with that twist at the end when you realize what the film is all about it doesn't matter then you realize it doesn't matter what's in the case and it's such a nice twist and it, it really it plays into that so well and it makes for a much more interesting ending i think i think it does too i, I and and you know, I mean, I'm I'm usually a fan of the Hollywood ending, and so one would think that I would be frustrated by this, and yet I am not. I end up being very satisfied by this film and and uh, by the the story that happens around this, around this case, and in particular uh, uh, by the uh, you know by the stunt work that is done in this movie that makes it that makes it an action film. Uh, I, I think that carries a different tone than uh, many action films of this of this era. Well, and and that's that's a, a good point. Um, John Frankenheimer actually was talked about that, and he he said it's uh, because a lot of people noticed when the film came out how it wasn't just like this high octane race from beginning to end. It was actually a film that had quiet moments, used silence well, and knew how to build tension. And and John Frankenheimer talks about that and saying how. How Hitchcock would even say the way that you that you build tension is by having the quiet moments before that, and that way when something happens, it makes it that much more exciting. And it does feel like a lot of filmmakers um, these days have kind of forgotten that, uh, particularly when they're making like high-octane sorts of films. Like if you look at the Fast and the Furious films, for example— um, it's it's really just like nonstop barrage of of stuff being thrown at you from beginning to end. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just, it's, you know, a totally different type of, of hyper filmmaking. And it's, you know, I, I, it works for what it's doing, but when you're really trying to make something that, that lasts, I think the end that has, um, has a better pacing and a feel that actually you can emotionally connect with better having those beats where, it slows down for a minute. Things get quiet and it builds and you create that tension. It ties you in emotionally rather than, you know, the, the commercial style where it's just thrown at you and you're expected to absorb it. Yes. And, uh, you know, that specifically takes us to, you know, a, a quick review of, you know, the brilliant pacing from the car chase in Bullet, where you actually have the first third of the car chase done, you know, uh, as we're watching them obey the law. Right. Uh, which and, and that that slowdown is almost a slow motion in comparison to the actual chase that comes after it. Uh, the the. Uh, out of control nature of uh, the French Connection that we discussed uh, last week, um, where you have the car chasing the train, and there's there's that sort of uh, that sort of disconnect from time when one of the players is out of control of the chase, uh, and and in this movie, I think we see both of those elements at play, where you have this fantastic uh, pacing, this unbelievable compression in not in terms of a train or any other sort of moving vehicle apart from the other cars but i think the you know the choice to set this and and run these car chases in nice and paris in incredibly compressed settings i think the setting mm-hmm. in fact has taken on sort of a role a character role in itself uh, and and uh, it is used to great effect in this movie uh, in particular it really is and you can see how for, i mean this came out in 98 you can see how it's influenced other films since then particularly the 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 tunnel chase that happens in the toward the end of the right. second car chase in this film and how that ended up influencing the Bourne films which we've already talked about absolutely now there there's another thing about uh, about this movie in particular that I think um uh you know we need to 
uh, at least talk about, which is the role of the actor as the driver. And I think this is where uh, Ronan and, and uh, De Niro in particular, uh, in, you know, in Frankenheimer's sort of uh, vision, I think really sets apart the, the role of the action driver. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love so much about this movie and watching De Niro drive is that he has this constant look of anxiety on his face. Like right. like with every every turn he executes and every car he sideswipes, he he is really in his head saying, "Oh, I'm sorry. I just did I gee, I'm sorry about that. Oh, this is terrible. I'm so sorry." You know, you actually feel that sort of anxiety and the the kind of panic in his role even though he never says a word. Right. Uh, during particularly the big chase that he, uh, where he's behind the wheel. And, and I think that is, um, I had kind of, uh, disconnected from that in, in French connection and bullet. And, and in this movie, I think he is such, he is a really interesting character to watch drive. Yeah, he is. He, he, well, I think what, what comes of that is it really looks like they're, I mean, they're really paying attention. They're a hundred and ten percent in the moment when he's when he's grabbing the um, the handbrake and pulling that to yeah. help him get around that turn and all of that. And you see him really doing all that stuff. It's just, I mean, you you see him so much in the moment, and that those expressions on his face. I mean, you're right there with him. It it adds that much more. Um, energy to the film and it, it, it makes for a very exciting car chase. Absolutely. It does. Absolutely. It does. It is, um, it is a wonderful trip. And, and, you know, I should, we should add the, um, the, the opening car chase at night after the big, the, the initial uh, exchange they're supposed to make that the team is buying some weapons and, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and so they're making the exchange and Sean Bean, you know, goes, goes a little bit crazy and and things happen and shots are fired and and the um, you know the chase uh begins and it's a it's an audi s8 uh that is uh, being driven in this first chase and this movie made audi cool again yeah and it's it, go ahead i was gonna say it did and actually um the uh um it, well, it, it did a lot for a lot of cars, but yeah, Audi and even a Peugeot, I was going to say, you know, the Peugeot that right. he's driving at one point. Yes. I don't know if it, I don't know if he made the Peugeot cool, but it was cool seeing him driving a Peugeot. Well, it, it really was. And, the, and it, let's see, the cars uh, used in this throughout the film, uh, let's see, there's the Audi S8, uh, Peugeot 406, Peugeot 605, Citroën, uh, XM, uh, BMW M5, Mercedes 450 SEL, and a Mercedes Benz w116 variant with a high powered engine and as far as i have read i don't know how they end up uh doing this uh that uh you i i'm assuming you caught up on the frankenheimer dvd commentary uh where he discusses the cars being towed through the streets of france uh by a mercedes you know i didn't because they didn't get put any extras on the blu-ray i wanted to talk to you about that uh, uh, toward the end here because that's a, i i know that's a bit controversial the dvd had all of these wonderful uh, uh you know uh wonderful making of uh, and commentary tracks uh and there he says that uh, the cars were actually towed through the streets at high speed right. not simulated by a mercedes benz 500e not bad mercedes yeah, no, I I think that's great. I mean, it's really a, a fantastic uh, way to get the shots looking great when you're going. I mean, it's being towed, I guess, is is one thing, but I mean, yeah, it, you're still able to get some great shots doing that. Absolutely. Um, the it, the uh, the car was driven uh, by uh, Skip Suddeth. Uh, the Audi was driven by Skip Suddeth, who's, um, he, you know, he's a he's an one of those interesting kind of vanilla actors who ends up everywhere. Uh, once you once you recognize him, he's he's kind of in a in a lot of stuff. Yeah, he plays Larry in this, and uh, you know he was in, um, gosh, what he's in Money Train, <laughs> right? He's in uh, uh, the Good Wife. Actually, he's in the Good Wife right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. He appeared in that as Mister Softy Man. <laughs> Mister Softy Man, Third Watch. Uh, uh, and uh, and he's also directed a number of episodes of ER, Criminal Minds, 
Uh, yeah. So uh, he's he's been around and and I think does a great job as the uh, as you know the original the hired uh, wheelman right uh, in this movie and and uh, uh, ends up leading a great uh, a great chase through the through the streets uh, in Ronan. So uh, you know this movie really stands out for its uh, for for the what they do with cars and not just um, you know these initial one-on-one chases but the uh, you know the daytime chase at the end uh, where they have the uh, the vast number of uh, you know of stunt cars uh, that are just you know destroyed yeah and I mean the the um, the person supervising the the drivers um, what is his name is uh, Lagnez I think Jean-Claude Lagnez um, who kind of um, the stunt coordinator, he devised all these car chases and uh, Frankenheimer really wanted to raise the bar and do something really great with car chases because he knew there was a lot of digital technology already out there and people could use that digital technology to enhance it and make it so you could do crazier things in car chases. And he really wanted to go back to that uh, real style that he started like back when he did Grand Prix back in the in the 60s. And um, so Lagnez, who was an actual race car driver, he had about 150 different stunt drivers out there to do all these different sequences. They were racing around at speeds up to 120 miles per hour. And just the cars that they wrecked, they had 80 cars that they used intentionally to wreck during the course of the production. Yeah, that's a... a, it, you can what what I like so much about these the destruction of these cars is just how uh, sort of tangible it is. You know, uh, it, it, I think um, you know we should make note of the uh, the sound design in this movie. Uh, oh yeah, it, it was a thing that I I had not um, you know I hadn't quite made uh, a connection until uh, you know my wife walks in as I'm watching it. She says, "Oh, I totally remember this." It, you can really feel the crunching. Yeah, uh, because of the sound, and I think that's a really good point. It's it sounds just like if you have witnessed, you know, a car accident. If you have seen two cars crunching into each other at a, even a reasonably high speed, they executed uh, that that level of sort of subdued, horrifying grinding uh, every time cars made contact in this movie. It was really uh, artfully, uh, I think, artfully done and uh, restrained. And, and and not just the, the crunching of the cars, but even just the racing around of the cars. They mm-hmm. were very specific in their audio recording of each of these cars. They took them all out on racetracks. They got all the sounds of the cars uh, revving and driving and braking. And every car had its own sound so that any time in the course of the production, they needed to put the, the car's sounds in. They always had the right car's sound with the car itself. Um, just to make sure, because I mean, people know cars. If you're a car man, you're going to know uh, the sound an Audi is going to make versus a Peugeot or a BMW. Right. I actually, I think that's uh, that that's a fantastic attention to detail. You don't. Uh, I I didn't make that connection, but I don't. You know, I don't drive an Audi today. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I don't know the difference between car engines, but but there are people who do. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the car movement uh, in these chases were done with um, those that weren't being towed by this uh, uh, beefy Mercedes were done with uh, right hand drive, uh, and so it looked particularly uh, w- during the De Niro and uh, Natasha McLone. Uh, Is it McLone? Or I thought it was McElhone. I don't know something. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to sound it like Deirdre, 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 Deirdre. Deirdre. Uh, to make it look like they were driving right-hand drive cars were used, and uh, and so uh, the stunt driver was actually driving on the right, um, uh, you know, unless they were you know doing the rear view tow camera. Right. And uh, boy, I I totally buy it. I it, the car chases in this film, yeah. honestly, it's hard to look away. Anytime one of the car chases starts, they're just so solid from beginning to end. I mean, Frankenheimer really took his time making sure that everything worked. I mean, he was so uh, careful about how, uh, the specifics of his car chases. He didn't have a a, uh, a, um, a a second crew come in to do that. 
he didn't have any second unit director. He did all of it himself. So after they shot the film, all the principal photography, he went out and essentially was the second unit director. He directed all of it himself because he wanted to make sure that it matched the style that he'd already set for the rest of the film. And he wanted to make sure that he got everything looking exactly as he wanted. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a true sign of, of a real master who had knew his craft and knew exactly what he wanted to get. Truly. Um, the, the, I think this line, uh, uh, kind of sets it up. Skip Suttoth had actually requested to do all of his own stunt driving during this car chase. And Frankenheimer says, okay, I don't want to see any brake lights. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. Well, they they uh, I, it's a it, it's a beautiful part. Uh, uh, there's a series of beautiful sequences in this film that that are done with cars, and that's what makes this movie. I think for me, you know, I said last week, this is a movie I could put on and just you know let it run because there's not a lot of talking uh, in this movie. Actually, they they it, you know you mentioned this sort of uh, use of silence. It's one of those movies that is just uh, you kind of let it wash over you, and it, it's um, uh, you know you don't get distracted by a lot of talky talk yeah uh and the story itself it's it's not too complex but it's it's a really interesting story and i love the tie-in of the samurai warriors to this uh, group of people that are essentially you know kind of cold war warriors who now no longer have sides to fight for or anything you know now they're all of a sudden just mercenaries out there basically taking money from the highest bidder and and going and just doing these jobs like retrieving a case that is uh i that, i'm i'm glad you brought that up so ronan is uh is the the masterless samurai uh or uh, according to wikipedia it's also someone who's graduated from high school but hasn't started college yet uh in japan <laughs> so so there's that Uh, the uh you know the thing that i'm i'm interested in is you know we talked about the 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 movie is the search for the case uh and at the end of the movie we realize that uh, you know as we get to the end particularly in the reveal the de niro reveal to natasha right uh to deirdre deirdre uh that you know really the what we've been doing this whole time is learning about each of these uh, characters. And as we are distracted by the case on on our first watch, what we get when we watch it the second and third time is we realize that there's a lot more complexity in the backstory of these hired guns than uh, that is just sort of leaked out by their behavior. Uh, y- you know, what we learn from Sean Bean's character that he's a fraud and how we discover that he's a fraud uh, through his behavior and through his interactions with De Niro. Uh, what we learn from, you know, Jean Renault's character and his, uh, you know, and his behavior with those, particularly in the, you know, in the, the uh, ice skating scene at the end and how he mm-hmm. relates to the other, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, to the other security officials. Uh, and, and particularly what we learn about De Niro. And, and I... This is one of those sort of things that I have not resolved for myself, and I wonder what your take on it is. For everybody else, and I think at the end of the film when we see Jean Reno walking up the stairs, um, and his voiceover comes back on, right, when we've been hearing, you know, De Niro at the beginning, what we, what I am... Uh, what I am left to sort of believe is that, you know, the Ronin really is in, is in the Frenchman's, uh, you know, character. He's the hired gun. Yeah. He is the the masterless uh, uh, samurai. Uh, but are we to believe that De Niro was the uh, the hired gun at one point, or was he always an agent on uh, well, assignment? I think he was always an agent. But I mean, I think the the Ronin is really all of these people, except I, I, for De Niro, depending on well, on right, your take except on the movie. for De Niro, and and I guess you would say probably except for. Deirdre and Seamus, since you know they're specifically uh, working, they're they're part of the IRA, right? Right. Uh, so it's really just all these these other people that they bring on board to help them retrieve this case. And right. So the interesting thing about De Niro is he's not really kind of this Ronin character. He's essentially a a, a spy posing as a, a Ronin so that he can get in with the group, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's the that's the take. And so what I have what I have heard is that there is a rather uh, vocal 
portion of, of the fan base of this movie that thinks that he was actually a Ronin all along and uh, was sort of rehired. Uh, oh, at the end, like of, he was rehired? Yeah, yeah, as a result of his work. I, I don't know. I, I guess I just have never thought that because he so specifically states, you know, I never left. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, that's what I, that was, that was my take. But, you know, you start reading what other people and then the peer pressure kicks in. Yeah, that's right. Okay, the so, webs so what pressure. he says is, you know, I never left. I'm here for your boss. I'm not even here for the case. And that, to me, relieves some of the pressure for us as the audience to to want to know what's in the case. That suddenly, in that beat, we now have a different uh, objective as an audience, a different target. Well, and it's it, that's the twist, right? That's right. the exciting twist that comes at the end of the film when you go, when all of a sudden the big reveal happens and, and you're like, Ooh, absolutely. So I, I mean, it's a, it's, it works really well. It's a great twist. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious how much of this was, uh, the original writer JD Zeke or, or how much of it was, uh, uh, the Richard Weiss, AKA David Mamet. Um, according to, J.D. Zeke, uh, most of it was his, and he got uh, the the shared screenplay credit, but in the story credit. But um, Mamet was unhappy with the fact that he had to share the screenplay credit with Zeke or Zeke because he felt he did enough changes to it that it was should have been his. And Frankenheimer said we didn't even use Zeke's script; it was all Mamet. So it's 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 interesting. It's interesting to um, always hear these battles about writing credits and try to figure out who really did what. The uh, you know the I don't know I I don't hear a lot of JD Zeke in this movie. I don't I I mean I part of that is because I've you know I've seen a lot of Witchblade. I admit it. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm a fan of the Yancey Butler. I'm very much a fan of Yancey Butler, and uh, and so he was uh, he was a writer on that. But the other one is that David Mamet is such an iconic um, sort of writer of dialogue, and I feel like you know I I went back and I I took off the shelf my scripts for um, uh, you, you know for Homicide and for um, uh, the Duck Variations and Sexual Perversity in Chicago and and you know I. As I as I was flipping through those this evening, kind of getting ready to talk about this film, I just, you know, it just comes back in Technicolor, just the voice of, uh, you know, of David Mamet, and that's the that's the voice I hear in in this film. Um, yeah. And and that makes it you know that much more sort of unfortunate because to me this is very much a David Mamet film, uh, and apparently, um, to Frankenheimer as well. Yeah. It's uh, and that's very true. It really did feel. Mammoth-ish. And actually, I had forgotten because when I watched it, I, I just read the credits and I was like, okay, uh, J.D. Zeke and Richard Weiss. And, and uh, you know, that was that. And it wasn't until I was looking again that I was reminded, oh, yeah, David Mamet uh, did write some of this. And it felt it, it did have, have that feel to it. When I looked back on it, I'm like, yeah, it really did kind of have a Mammoth feel. Not so much so that I felt like you, he was writing in every um, uh, er, like he would do, like in Glengarry Glenn Ross or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it still has that beat and that pacing that he writes with. That that's what I hear, and the use of silence, Frank. Uh, frankly, the way he writes silence uh, is, uh, you know, particularly notable in this film. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that, that was the interesting thing that has he written anything else under this, uh, pseudonym? Is this, I, I don't know anything else about, uh, Richard Weiss. Um, not that I have ever heard. I, I've never heard that he had, had, um, written anything under another, under that pseudonym before. Uh, I, you know, he's, this Richard Weiss is the only thing that shows up. Yeah. Uh, as and it brings up when you when you search in on IMDb, it brings up David Mamet. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it looks like he has not, uh, at least in his filmography, it looks like he has not written anything else under that name. Uh, 
Speaking of, yes, completely off topic, but did you see that they're remaking about last night? No. It's I coming out not. next year. Steve Pink is directing it uh, based on the play. Oh, dear. Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Wow. That was uh, that was one of my... I, I was a pretty big fan of this uh, of this movie just because I, you know, I was a huge fan of the play, and I hope they actually do it greater justice. Paul, I, I've never seen it. Uh, Paula the Patton movie or and Michael the play. Ely. You've never seen it. I know. Oh man. <laughs> oh, I heard the movie wasn't very good, so I never bothered with it. No, no, no. It was fine. The movie was fine. the The play is better, so uh, you know, read the play. Uh, yeah. But um, gosh, this is fascinating. Uh, so. What uh, Michael uh, Michael Ely uh, is uh, is in it? Who was in the stunningly good? Uh, he's been in a lot of stuff since then, but the stunningly good Sleeper Cell in uh, two thousand five, um, and uh, is absolutely worth picking up. It was a Showtime. It ran for two seasons. It was a Showtime series that is fantastic. Uh, Tales of Terrorism, hmm. uh, and he plays a um, an undercover. Uh, agent in a Muslim terror cell. Interesting. Yeah, he. It was great. Uh, anyway, that's uh, that's good news. I I'd be interested in seeing that again. I it still it bums me out. File that away and just sort of the the general bum that comes with we've run out of things to to write. <laughs> right. When they're remaking when about they're remaking last about last night, we know we've, we're uh, you know how I thought we'd already hit the bottom of the barrel. Apparently we have not. Apparently not. Uh, so well, yeah. Uh, they haven't remade Little Nicky yet, so at least at least we have that. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but but Machete Kills is coming up, so that's right. There you go. Uh, so, what else do we have to say about this movie? It was not uh, terribly well received in the box. Well, I should say I I, I should uh, qualify that it didn't do very well. No, it seems so to have been remembered really very well for a big. You know, car chase thriller. I, I'm really surprised it it fared how it did at the box office. Because it has, I mean, check me on this. It feels like it has been remembered very fondly. Uh, it has. I mean, I, I well, to be honest though, when I saw it the first time in the theater with you, actually, mm-hmm. um, I was a That's little like, weird, okay, right? Well, that was kind of fun. It didn't like knock my socks off or anything, but. I have found over the years, much like you, that it's a film that's so easy to return to. It's just, it's so easy to watch. It's enjoyable. It's just, it's well-paced. The car chases are exhilarating. Everything about it is is just wonderful. And I, I, I like it more and more every time I see it. I think it, it might be just one of those slow burn sort of films. I think it is. I, it, it, it's certainly what it feels like. This is a movie that where... Uh, uh, Boy, a bunch of people came together to deliver an extremely complex uh, dance of people and machines in the form of a, a thriller and a, and a solid story. Uh, and I think it executed uh, extremely well. Uh, it it feels like it it managed through you know through action and. Uh, and silence to deliver a story of of uh, sort of compl- a complex character, uh, f- you know, uh, complex character driven. Uh, um, man, I'm I'm losing the word. What is the word I'm looking for? Just a, just uh, I'm a edit. I'll edit that. Character driven. I'll, I'll uh, fix it in action post. thriller. Yeah, it's know. a character driven action thriller. Uh, uh, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, it is. Uh, I I I think it's. Part of the of of the criticism is that it's a movie that's not really about anything, and I disagree with that. Yeah, uh, I I think it is uh, very much a movie about uh, you know about what happens when opposing forces, uh, you know, these sort of opposing uh, energies come into conflict with one another uh, in uh, sort of a state of surprise. Uh, that these guys didn't even know they were opposing forces until halfway through the film, and then they suddenly realized that that um, you know this is this is very much a a, a, a film about finding out uh, how to do what's right uh, while you are pretending to be 
so wrong. Yeah. And I, I love that. I love the way it, it, it plays out. I, just, you know, there's, I mean, there's one thing we do. The we, characters are so fascinating. I, I, have a, I think that's what makes it, aside from the story, these characters are so fun to watch. I mean, De Niro, the way that he plays the scenes where he's just so intent on always just making sure he has the right information. And even when people say, you know, oh, what are you, are you worried about saving your own skin? Yeah, it covers my body. You know, just yeah. lines like that. It's just like, yeah, I mean, he he wants to know the information because he just wants to pull everything off the right way. Yeah, I think that's an important. There, there are two pieces of, uh, where that comes into play. First of all, is is you're right when he's when he's getting the lowdown and he just drives and drives and drives and drives and drives to every single detail to the point where he exhausts even the other professionals in the room. Right. Uh, you know, we see Sean Bean sort of it pushes him over the edge uh, when you see Jean Renault, uh, you know, and his, you know, the way he plays his reaction to De Niro is impressed. Uh, but uh, but everybody, you know, is sort of rallies around his orbit and that energy of trying to find the detail. Uh, the other character interaction that I thought was so uh, that was stunning to me was in the holdup between Stellan Skarsgård and um, the the thug at the end, the the uh, Russian. Mm-hmm. When he holds up the phone and says, you know, we're going to do this deal. Essentially, the, the handoff is we're going to do this deal. I'm going to take my money. You're going to take this thing, the case, and I'm going to leave. And the way I know I'm going to get out of here is because I have an, a, uh, I have a hired gun in the audience who has, has that hired gun trained on your very famous uh, Russian skater played girlfriend, by... Right, his uh, Russian skater girlfriend. Russian skater girlfriend uh, played by Katerina Witt. Now, what I think is so great here, uh, the, the setup is that if he doesn't make the call within 45 seconds, uh, the hired gun's going to pull the trigger and kill the girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And they let it play out. And eventually, he shoots uh, the the uh, Russian shoots Skarsgård and lets his girlfriend die. Yeah, and and it's it's so tense watching that because you see Skarsgård, the way that he plays that is just genius because you see him start realizing that he's not going to get out of here and you can see those beads of sweat forming on his forehead and you can just you can see his second guessing his decision to to make this kind of the way is going to going to go because it it starts feeling like it's not going to happen and it's it it makes for a beautifully tense scene absolutely does i i think it's uh, it it just is another one of those scenes that is uh you know that is a, a a standout in this movie something that other movies do differently that they they don't take that risk and i think this movie it's one of those little elements those little risks that they take in service of watching these characters make these transitions that uh that i think that is is uh, beautifully done yeah really is what do you think of the casting of uh, of Jonathan Price in this? Uh, well, I, I, I want to throw a thought out your way, but I just want your thoughts on that first. I I was not. Um, he's he's the one I haven't uh, historically been moved by, and I think I don't know if it's. I usually love Jonathan Price. I lo- I love Jonathan Price in a lot of what he does, and in this one, I have such a hard time with the accent. Uh, and hearing it come out of his face, uh, that I find myself really, uh, uh, really confused by that choice. That's exactly my feeling with it. I mean, I, I do love him. I mean, he's in Brazil, which is my favorite film of all time. And, uh, he's been in many other great films, just a fantastic actor. However, they do such a great job of casting people who use their real accents Yes. Throughout the film. I mean, Jean Renault has that wonderful kind of French accent when he speaks his English. Natasha McElhone has that that great Irish brogue, Stellan Skarsgård. It's I mean, I guess he's kind of playing more of a, a German, but you know, he, he But he so can pull really, it off. What what is he? He's Swedish, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um and, and Sean Bean, you know, they all have those great kind of European accents already. 
And then Jonathan Price is like, oh, and then they then they bring in the American to play the 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 big Irish guy. That for me just it just never seemed like the right choice. I had that problem with it. It's like he just wasn't uh he just wasn't built to make those sounds, you yeah. know? <laughs> Like it, it just didn't, uh, it just didn't take, um, it, you know, I think, I, I think to your point, there are, um, gosh, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, to say, you know, who they, they could have chosen, uh, to, to play that any better. I, you know, now we're, we're 14 years later and, and I'm sort of wondering, gosh, uh, you know what would the choices have been? I mean, we're talking about what, Cole Meany, uh, Gabriel Byrne. Right, uh, yeah. I mean, you, you know, look back to, to the 1998 big Irish actors, and yeah, you're right. I mean, the Gabriel Byrne type of people. Well, I mean, hell, be, uh, Liam Neeson. Be looking at. Liam so. Neeson, uh, Brendan Gleeson. I mean, these are guys who, who have been working for a long time and are already Irish. Right. Uh, that, uh, that I think they really could have... Uh, you know they could have could have played that uh quite well yeah, so it's yeah. it's unfortunate but um uh so he was he's uh, in my view he's absolutely the weak uh, the weak link in this film and it's just a a weird miscast yeah so, i agree so so anyway the movie uh, what do you have for the budget cuz it made its money back in the box office but not by much I don't, uh, yeah, not by much. It uh, actually, according to this, it doesn't look like it did. I see that the production budget, which is what it cost to make the film, was $55 million. I see that the total budget for the film was $80 million. Oh, so yeah. all the prints and advertising, everything else, bumped it up um, a, a nice chunk there. And I see the total domestic gross was about 41 Point six million international, about twenty nine million. So worldwide is only about seventy point six million dollars that it made on a total budget of eighty million. So it's a it's a box office loser. That's that is too bad. Yeah. Uh, I uh, if you haven't seen this movie, and it sounds like by the box office you probably haven't. <laughs> uh, head over to rashpixel.tv uh, uh, this week and you can stream it right there from the website. You can click on that little link. It costs you a couple of bucks. You can watch it on Amazon uh, right now uh, or you can pick up the DVD, of course. And we would uh, we would love to you to do that at rashpixel.tv and support the show. It sends us a, a couple of pennies uh, to help uh, support our our hosting in time. So, uh, absolutely check this movie out. What else do you have? You got always, you've got, what's your one more thing? The, the random thing that I just want to throw out there for this one, which I think is the strangest, strangest choice. And I'm not sure why John Frankenheimer would have made this decision, but Ron Jeremy, porn <laughs> star was actually in the film. He had a small role playing a fishmonger in Paris whose stall gets demolished during the chase. But when they did some test screenings of this and all the audiences started cracking up because they recognized him. And so the studio very smartly cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I love about that? Here we have a movie with Robert De Niro and uh, Stellan Skarsgård and Sean Bean and Jean Reno. And it was Ron Jeremy that was too famous for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Zappic. Oh man, yeah, that's just crazy. Uh, that is fantastic. Well, this is a this is a great great film. Please go check it out, uh, rashpixel.tv, and uh, you know, let us know what you think. Head over to Facebook and uh, drop us a line, or uh, yeah. right on the site, drop us a line. Let us know what you think of this movie. It's a it is the unsung hero of great car chases. Definitely, and everybody should see it at least once because it's just it's it's fun. It's just a breeze to watch and. Uh, and it's much more interesting than a lot of the more recent car chase movies out there. Absolutely. I think that's all we have. So, uh, Andy, where can people find you? They can uh, head on over to Twitter and they can find me at Soda Creek Film or Facebook at Soda Creek Film. And, of course, on the Movies We Like Facebook page. Excellent. And uh, same thing with me, at Pete Wright on the Twitter or uh, find me on Facebook. You can plug me in uh, on the Facebook page uh, or at rashpixel.tv. We're right there. Look forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much for joining us for Ronan, and we'll catch up. Next week, we're going to hit um, one that I 
had never seen, uh, but I'm so glad you uh, you recommended that we push this uh, put this on the list of great car chases. That's right. We're gonna be I doing, made you uh, do it. We're going to be doing Drive uh, with Ryan Gosling. Man. That's right. Very excited to talk about this movie. Until next week, everybody, we're out of here. Have a good one. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>